following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. You know, in the Bible, there is one character in the New Testament that is pulled from the Old Testament that gets mentioned just about more than anybody else in the Old Testament, uh, a great hero of faith. And that man, of course, is King David. And David has a special relationship with Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And we discover this in the Bible because not only did Jesus acknowledge this, but so did the writers of the New Testament under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And what they realized was that David was the ancestor forerunner and foreshadower of the ministry of Jesus Christ. I'll say that again. He was the ancestor, he was the forerunner, and he was the foreshadower of Jesus Christ. Now, so much so that King David gets mentioned 58 times in the New Testament. Unbelievable. Quite often with the phrase, son of David. 58 times he appears across the 27 books of the New Testament. So important is David to the story of Jesus as this ancestor, forerunner, and foreshadower that if you look at the first book of the Bible, the first chapter, the first verse, you will read this of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the first thing that you and I learn about Jesus when we turn to the New Testament, other than all other things we could learn about him, is that he was the son of David. And if we went to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, its last chapter, and some of the very last words spoken by Jesus in Revelation 22, we would find Jesus uttering these words, that I am the root and the offspring of David. These bookends to the New Testament have David at forefront and center. One of the most curious references I believe about David that kind of perplexes me is found in Acts 13.22. For those of you writing notes down here, we don't have time to turn to it. In Acts 13.22, we find this curious expression carried on from the Old Testament about David that God in David, after the replacing of Saul, wanted a man after his own heart. Do you know what perplexes me about this? It's not the highs of David. It's the incredible lows of David that God, for knowing what David would be like and what he would do, could still call him what? A man after his own heart. Isn't that curious to you? For what aspect of David's life in the Old Testament reflected the image of God? Or the heartbeat of God. Can you think of any other character in the Bible who, was, who represented the heartbeat of God? Well, of course, there is one who is the express manifest heartbeat of God. That is Jesus Christ. I wonder what event or moment in David's life most closely represented the life of Jesus and his ministry. 
I don't believe it was necessarily the killing of Goliath. It wasn't the winning of a princess's hand in marriage. And it was not, ladies and gentlemen, him grabbing a ragtag group of rebels at a cave called Adullam and making them into a mighty fighting force. I believe it's found in the mere 13 verses often overlooked in David's life, and that's what we're going to turn to right now. And it is my hope this morning that you will see graphically displayed across these 13 verses the ministry and life of Christ expressed in David himself. In 2 Samuel 9, 1-13, we read as follows. Now David said, there is, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when he had called him to David, the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, at your service. Then the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show thee kindness of God. And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed he is in the house of Maker, the son of Amiel in Lodabor. Then the king David sent and brought him out of the house of Maker, the son of Amiel from Lodabor. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and all to his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king had commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. Thus saith the word of the Lord. The very first thing you should note in the very first verse here is that the motivation that David has for this act that he is going to carry out is not because he is under any obligation contractually. It's not because there is some debt owed. He specifically tells us that it is an act of kindness. In verse 3, he says it's God's kindness, God's love I want to manifest here. Now, the Hebrew word in here that is translated as kindness is the word hesed. 
And I want you to say that after me. Hesed. Let's do it again. Hesed. Again. Hesed. Guys, you're really half-hearted. Just one more time. Really loud. Pretend you're Pentecostals. Hesed. Thank you very much. Now, you know this word, and I want you to remember this word because it's, it is the fulcrum upon which this whole story starts. There would be no story about David and Mephibosheth unless there was Hesed. And translators and editors of the Bible have a lot of trouble with this word. And the reason is that it's not, it's not, it's, there's no way to really encapsulate its full meaning in just one word. Because it's a whole raft of ideas that is poorly expressed with the word kindness in many ways. So this word can mean love, it can mean mercy, it can mean grace. There's a covenantial nature to it. It also means faithfulness and it can mean kindness. And yet it gets translated here as kindness. Now sometimes Bible translators and editors get round this by using an amplifier word to give it more punch. See, you and I, as English speakers, can somehow get some grasp of this. So when it talks about kindness, sometimes when the word hesed appears, they will put an amplifier word in front of it, and they will call it, and you will have heard this expression, and you will have wondered why it was in the Bible. It is God's loving kindness. It's not just any kindness, ladies and gentlemen. It's his loving kindness. It's his hesed Sometimes when it's translated the word love, they put an amplifier word in front of it, and the word might be something like God's steadfast love. Not just any love, not something transitory or passing, but something that's eternal, unmoving. There is no shadow of turning in this type of love. It's steadfast. It's hesed. And this is the type of love and emotion and force that is behind this action. The keys to David's action is motivated by hesed, loving kindness. There's no way he is obligated to do this. Saul's family was at enmity with, of course, David. Saul for most of his life, I guess. Now, this idea is closely associated with Jesus Christ. Jesus, is, of course, is not easily compacted into one word, is he not? He has kindness, love, mercy, grace, faithfulness, a covenantial thing going on, all tied up and more than we could express just simply in one word. In fact, Jesus was the embodiment of Hesed. Wasn't he? Of course he was. Jesus was Hesed. And if you think about what motivated Jesus when he helped people, when he spoke to people, when he preached and on the Sermon on the Mount, what was his motivation for doing this? You know, the New Testament writers often come up with this one word to describe the emotions and the reason for why Jesus carried out his acts. And that word is the word compassion. Compassion is not just feeling sympathetic for somebody. Compassion is something that means that you also have a desire to remedy, fix, or change the situation somebody finds themselves in. See, lots of people can have sympathy. Oh, I have a feeling that has some sympathy for what you're going through. But compassion is something that says, yes, I have a sympathy, but I have more than that. There is something in me that wells up that says, I want to change your circumstances if I can. And that is exactly what Jesus had. If you think about the times the word compassion appears just in the Gospel of Matthew. In the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, we discover that a widow has lost her only son, and Jesus comes to her, and the reason he acts is out of, he said, the Bible said, because he had 
compassion. In Matthew, um, Matthew 9, when a great crowd, throng of people come to Jesus and he sees that they are leaderless, they have no direction, there's no one to guide them or to look after them, the Bible says that he has compassion on them. When in Matthew's 14th chapter, a vast throng of sick people are there, ill and infirmed, Jesus goes to heal them. And why does he do that? The Bible said that he did it because of compassion. So much compassion tied up in one person. The last example of Matthew's gospel where this word appears is in the 22nd chapter where we have two blind men on the roadside and the crowd pushes them aside and they cry out to Jesus. And everyone else wants them to be quiet. But Jesus stops and listens to them. And you know what the beautiful thing is that they said, these two blind men? Do you know how they addressed Jesus? Listen to this. They called him, they yelled out, Lord, thou, or you, son of David. <laughs> I love this. Lord, I mean, they were physically blind, but spiritually alert. Were they not? I mean, how could they know that? You and I have the advantage of having 27 you know, books of the New Testament, and here were these blind men at the side of the road, pushed to the background, and, but they had the spiritual foresight to say, Lord, thou son of David, and Jesus responds to that, and they said, will you have mercy on us? And Jesus said, what do you want? We want to see. And the Bible said that he touched them. And often Jesus' compassion is associated with physical touch. He got very close to people in their lives. See, day, just as David's actions were motivated by Hesed, so Jesus' life, death, and resurrection were the perfect embodiment of Hesed. That is God's loving kindness. The second thing we should note in this great story is that it was David who initiated the relationship with, with Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is blissfully unaware of what is going on. Think about this. He's living in a place called Lodabor. He is not in Jerusalem. But a whole lot of events are transpiring in Jerusalem that he knows not of in a day before a Twitter feed from King David or updating of Facebook. He is blissfully unaware of what is going on and what is transpiring that will draw him close to David. Isn't this how Jesus works in the lives of you and I? Seriously. He initiates the relationship. Now, I know we talk about choosing Jesus, believing in Jesus. I came to the front and I gave my heart to Jesus. It's almost like we voted for Jesus. And our theology gets so mixed up, we kind of, and sometimes with the songs we have, our songs kind of lead us to believe that we made this decision. It was of our vocation, our, and we were the ones who initiated it. On the contrary, ladies and gentlemen, that is simply bad theology and just something we get caught up in. But in actual fact, he chose us. Do you know in John's Gospel, the 15th chapter, Jesus says this to the disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you. In John 6, Jesus makes this amazing statement. He said, no man comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Wow. 
You mean before I even heard of a church, before I heard of, a, heard of Jesus, that he was calling me, that he was wooing me? You bet. You would not be here today, ladies and gentlemen, believing in the Lord for your salvation and trusting him for the assurance of eternal life if it had not been first him who had touched you and the Holy Spirit, the Father, had drew you to the gospel of Christ. Do you know before, there ever was, before you were ever born, before there ever was a city called Auckland, before there was a country called Aotearoa, New Zealand, before, ladies and gentlemen, there were birds in the heavens, fish in the sea, mammals on the land, before this ball of mud and water was set in circuit around this great sun that we have, he had chosen you. The Bible in the book of Ephesians says this, that I chose you before the foundation of the world. I do believe that was before you were able to make a conscious decision to follow him. <laughs> he chose us. That gives me great assurance, ladies and gentlemen, that's not based on my standing here today, but on his work in my life and his wooing and calling me. Just as David called Mephibosheth, so God called us. Not only does David express this loving kindness of God and initiates a relationship, but there is something mighty about the fact that if you look at this text and meditate it on for just a modicum of time, you'll realize that David takes absolutely no consideration of Mephibosheth's condition that he was lame in both his feet. Now we discover that in 2 Samuel verse, chapter 4, verse 4, how Mephibosheth became to be lame. Some Bibles would say crippled. In other words, he, could, he was halted the way he walked. He could not walk properly. He may have had needed assistance to even walk. But David takes no account of this, even though it's mentioned to him, even though everybody clearly knew that Mephibosheth was known for this one thing, that he was lame, from a royal household, but lame. It is clear in 2 Samuel 4.4 that after the death of Jonathan, his father, as the family was fleeing the royal household, a nurse was holding Mephibosheth at the age of five. And as they fled the house, the Bible tells us that the nurse dropped Mephibosheth and his legs or spine were so damaged that thereafter he was lame. It may have been compound fractures that were never set properly. He may have had a spinal injury. The Bible, of course, doesn't go into those kind of details. But it explicitly says it was after that moment that he forever, for the rest of his life, was lame. Now, the ancient world was a lot crueler than the modern world for people like this. If you were born with a physical, what they would have called a deformity, or a lameness, or a disability, a child like that in the ancient world was left on a hillside or out in the woods to die of exposure or to be eaten by beasts or sometimes they were killed at what are known as infanticide walls. Infanticide, the killing of children like this was very, very common in the ancient world. 
Mephibosheth, though, was able and not lame when he was born. He suffered his disability at the age of five and therefore obviously survived this and lived into later life. But that didn't mean his life was going to be easy. You see, in the ancient world, somebody who has a disability is not highly favored. Those who survived adulthood could be ostracized. They would be demeaned. They would be discriminated against. But look at David in this text. Somebody else has to mention the disability. It's not something that he utters from his lips. This is not something that is going to impede him allowing this man to come into his court. Think about this. He's going to have a man come into his court who in the ancient world was by rights ostracized, demeaned, and discriminated against, and to him it is nothing. But more than that, the people in his court, he expects them to do what? Follow his lead There will be no talk of his disability. It is of no account to his place in this setting of royalty. He's unconcerned about how others may think in his court. He grants this disabled man the privilege of sitting at the king's table always. Isn't this God's attitude towards you and I? Really? I think it is. Weren't you and I born shapen by iniquity. We entered this world speaking lies, and we, by nature, are crippled in sin. And yet Jesus, when you look at his ministry, is so much like David here. He breaks down social conventions and goes and visits people who righteous, healthy people would never visit. Prostitutes, tax collectors, People of ethnicities that were frowned upon like the Samaritans who were seen as being half-castes to proper Jews. And he breaks down all those social conventions because those essentially are not important to him. It's the person he's concerned about. He wants to deal with our sin. But our sin is not really an impediment for this, our initial relationship with him. He wants us just as we are. Let's face it, when Mephibosheth went to David, he must have thought to himself, I can shave, I can change my clothes, but what can I do about my legs? Nothing. Nothing. You know, there's nothing you can do to get yourself better to meet the King Jesus. There is nothing. You just have to go the way you are. And the beauty of it is, ladies and gentlemen, he accepts you and I and has accepted you and I just as we are without any regard for this. Jesus continually defied social convention by elevating children, dining with sinners, discipling tax collectors, and engaging with Samaritans. And guess what, ladies and gentlemen, he even deigned to talk to you. That's pretty terrific if you ask me. So he initiates the relationship. There's Hesed there. He takes no account of the way we are. We just come as we are to him. But notice also in this text that David understood Mephibosheth, and you can see in here that he tells him not to be afraid. Now for what reason would Mephibosheth be afraid of being in the presence of David? I think it's in part because of his physical condition. Another aspect might be the fact that he has a son. 
Mephibosheth has a son. And quite often in the classical world, when you overthrow a family, you remove all elements of the preceding family that they may not come back yet later and usurp your position. Maybe he thought that David was asking him into his presence so that he could deal with uh, Mephibosheth's son. He had no fear from Mephibosheth. There was no way Mephibosheth could be king in the ancient world because of his disability, probably, but his son. So maybe he feared for his son, or maybe it was the fact that he was now in public view, exposed, vulnerable before everybody who could see what he was like in a place of high standing where everything seemed to be too good for somebody like him. But what does David say to him? He says, do not be afraid. When we look and come to Jesus with our sin and emotional and spiritual disabilities, he has compassion on us. Why would Jesus have compassion on us? There is a good reason for this, ladies and gentlemen. One of the reasons is this, that he was the incarnate God, the God-man, spending time on this earth. He knew what it was like to be what? Ostracized. He knew what it was like to be demeaned. He knew what it was like to be discriminated against. He was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. We despised him and esteemed him not. In the book of Hebrews, we read, we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. How many times did Jesus say to people, do not be afraid? He understood their frailties. When he sent out the disciples on their first missionary journey, what did he say to them? Do not be afraid. When he came walking on the water, a clear exposure of his divinity and power and the disciples in there in the boat. What are the words he utters from his lips, knowing full well what they may be thinking? And he said, do not be afraid. When a man comes to Jesus and his son is sick, perhaps near nigh on death, Jesus utters these words, do not be afraid. When the three amigos, Peter, James, and John, go to the Mount of Transfiguration, and Moses is there, Elijah is there, Jesus says to them, do not be afraid. On the island of Patmos to a 90-year-old man with poor eyesight and arthritis, when he sees Jesus come in his glory, you know this text from Revelation 1, his eyes are a flame of fire. His feet are unto, like unto fine brass, and his right hand he has seven stars. His mouth, his, his voice is like the sound of many waters. And, and it talks about his face being like the sun shining in all its strength. And the Bible says that John, this old 90-year-old man, thereabouts, falls on his face. And the Bible says, like a dead man. The Bible says that Jesus reaches out and touches him. And he says to this frail old man, do not be afraid. When you and I come to Jesus, we need to be of an assurance and know that he is willing to hear us and accept us as we are. But he also says to us, do not be afraid. Do not fear. Finally, after demonstrating hesed, initiating the call, Accepting him 
as we are and understanding our emotions, David clearly shows that one of the motivating forces in all of this, I think, is that he wanted another son. And this is so much like the nature of God, an extension of his family. He wants another son. You see, he's not going to come in as a mere servant, but he is going to be like a son in David's house. I don't know about you, ladies and gentlemen, but there's a big difference between being a servant and a son. There is a huge difference. The son has a whole lot of liberties a servant would never have in a household. When Mephibosheth entered, what did he call himself? A servant. But David has much bigger ideas for this man. You note also in verse 8 that he calls himself a dead dog. Now dogs to us in the 21st century urban environment are what we call pets. Or for some ladies who have large bags and small dogs, accessories. <laughs> so when we think of a dog in the Western world living in a city like this, we have them as pets, we love them. But it's very different to the ancient world and the Middle East, and particularly to Jews themselves, felt this had a very different aspect. You see, we think of Lassie, that beautiful, is it a border collie? Fantastic, faithful, loyal dog, saving kids from rivers and stuff, if you're old enough to know Lassie. Or if you know anything about Tintin, one of my favorite comic kind of characters, his dog Snowy, fantastic, does a lot of the work for Tintin. If you think about um, Snoopy from Peanuts, pretty cool dog. Think about Einstein from Back to the Future, Doc's dog. If you're a fan of Oblix and Asterix, you'll be thinking about Dogomatics. And of course, if you're old enough and their parents had young kids for long enough, you'll recall Beethoven, one, two, three. <laughs> I don't know how many Beethoven films there are and how many St. Bernards they used in that, but they, those tapes got really used an awful lot. In the ancient world, is very different. To call yourself a dog is not to call yourself Beethoven, Snoopy, Snowy, Einstein, Dogomatics, or Lassie. It's shocking. To those listening to Mephibosheth, it was associating himself with squalor, poverty, and an animal synonymous with a pig. You in the Middle East call someone a dog, you are not complimenting them. That is a serious insult in this period. One of the reasons for this is that dogs will eat almost anything, therefore they are unpure. In fact, dogs are even known to eat corpses. So a dog has a very different meaning. So what was Mephibosheth saying when he called himself a dog? And not just any dog, a dead dog. He's drawing attention to his miserable condition as an inconsequential, disgusting creature. This is his self-assessment of who he is. When he called himself a dead dog, I believe it would be almost as though all those people in the king's court would have taken a step back and they would have gone, did I hear what you said? That is an absolutely shocking thing to say of yourself. Do you know where our man Mephibosheth lived? In a place called Lodabor. He had no inheritance. So he lived, I guess, off the charity of other people at their behest and at their goodwill. 
Lodabor means a barren land or no harvest. So here is this man with no inheritance, living off the good graces of other people, who was ostracized, demeaned, and discriminated against, living in a place of absolutely no harvest, lacking fruitfulness, with no prospect or hope of anything good happening to him. Do you know what the name of Phibosheth means? It means shame destroyer. My guess is that every, not every time, but I bet on occasion, when he heard people call his name, he cringed inside. And he thought, I am the exact opposite of shame destroyer. I am the personification of shame. I come from a discredited family. I have lost my inheritance. I am disabled. I live in a barren land. And I have absolutely nothing of my own. And yet, the king calls me into his presence. And if you think about these words, I'm going to restore everything that you lost. Do you think he believed that? That you will now have servants and you will eat in my presence? Have you ever in your life had an occasion where everything seemed absolutely hopeless or things had not been going well, and then suddenly out of the blue, a ray of light seems to shine down upon you by someone saying something or doing something for you, and it's so contrary to everything you've ever been experiencing from a Mephibosheth that was probably decades, that it seems fantastical and possible and you cannot believe what the person is saying. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. I remember one time somebody, it was the words they spoke. The words they spoke to me. And when they spoke those words to me, inside of me something came up and it was this. That is not true. I thought, that cannot be true that you really feel that. That you believe that. And that is our relationship. Is that really true? Because I cannot accept that. It was true. But my initial reaction was because of carrying this baggage with me for all that time. It was suddenly like, he really means it. And I find it so fascinating here that when David gives him all this good news, Mephibosheth is still down there saying, I'm a dead dog. It's almost as though he cannot hear and bear it and believe the good fortune that has now suddenly occurred to him. It's beyond comprehension. And look at the verse 9. David stops speaking to Mephibosheth. Why? Because I think maybe Mephibosheth is an emotional, physical wreck. And he now turns to Ziba. He says, I can't speak to Mephibosheth any further on this subject, so let's speak to Ziba. This is what is going to happen. Wow. An utter transformation, an amazing example of Hesed. What must it have been like for Mephibosheth to have one day been living in exile in a place called Lodabor, with no inheritance, and to be ushered into King David's presence, to have his inheritance restored, and to eat forever at the king's table. Think about the moment that he slid his lame legs, lame feet, 
underneath the king's table to a vast spread of food and beverages like you'll never experience, ladies and gentlemen, in this life, but you will in the hereafter. Think about it. The king's table, the Messiah, you push your feet under. What must have been the expression on his face? All his Christmases and then some had all come at once. And guess what? His name, Mephibosheth, which had been like a mockery to him every time he had heard it, like a curse, a misspoken word confronting him, suddenly fit him like a Savile Row suit. Yeah, I am Mephibosheth. Suddenly his name was what he was. I don't know about you, but that is terrific. Acts 13.22, we find that David had a heart after God's own heart. And I believe this is the manifest expression of Jesus in David's life as his ancestor, forerunner and foreshadower. How do you feel about that, Mephibosheth? I'm talking to you. <laughs> Congregation, brothers and sisters, I don't know if you've, ever, if you've worked this out yet, you are Mephibosheth. You, sir, are Mephibosheth. The people on the front row are Mephibosheth. The second row, the third row, the fourth row, all the way to the back to the peanut gallery and the sound people are all, they often get missed out, are all Mephibosheth. Own it. Think about it. Enjoy it. So often we've been in Christianity for so long we forget who we were because our shame has been destroyed. But this story is so powerful. Isn't this story of David and Mephibosheth an amazing picture of God's work in your life, Mephibosheth? God's nature is on display in his loving kindness towards us. God initiated our relationship when we were afar off. God completely accepted us at that moment, regardless of who or what we were. God understood us, and guess what he did? He encouraged us. God understands us, encourages us, and then, believe it or not, he said, I don't want you just to be a servant. <laughs> I tell you what, I'd be happy to be a servant in his house. Even David said that, just a gatekeeper. But the Lord has something so much bigger. He makes us, think about it, God makes feeble human beings and clay vessels, members of his family, not just members, people who have an inheritance, sons and daughters of the king. 1 John 3.1 How great is the love the Father lavishes on us that we should be called children of God. How great is the love of the Father, the Father lavishes on us, that we should be called children of God. It's really good news. God's hesed manifests in our life for all eternity. How long did David say Mephibosheth could sit at his table forever. <laughs> Come on, put a smile on your face. It's forever. It's forever. It cannot be snatched, taken away, stolen. It's heavenly treasure 
which we get comfort in and know right here is an experience in our lives, even on this earth, as imperfect as it is. Lord, remind us of the joy of our salvation. Remind us of that moment when we came to you and you accepted us as we were and we slipped our feet under the table and we were so grateful, so blessed. Lord, let us not stray from that table. Let us not stray from your hesed. Let us not turn aside, but Lord, embrace you. We thank you that you have somehow, beyond all expectation, all reasonableness, you call us sons and daughters. We are your children and we are infinitely blessed because of that. Thank you, Jesus, for your goodness to us. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.